Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. We got there. I'm proud of us. I am Pastor Mike, and I actually want to start today with something very light, which is the relative nature of how we experience time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, popcorn stuff, right? Yeah, Chuck's with me. I want to upset the table by polling the room real quick. First, I want to ask you, what activity goes by super slow for you? Just shout it out. Parenting? My message! <laughs> Sir, I have been given the keys to the kingdom. Watch yourself! Let's flip it. How about activities that go by super fast? Sleep? Sleep? Roller coasters, vacation. What else? Games. Oh, which kind of games? Board games? I'm just kidding. You're a youth. It's a video game. Kids these days. <laughs> VC gaming. Okay, I like that. You see, the point is that we all experience time incredibly differently. And there's a whole host of reasons that that is true. For example, research has shown that measuring time actually impacts how we perceive it. Time does not fly when we are having fun. That is a myth. In fact, when you're doing something you enjoy, your brain becomes more present to the time that is spent, the time that's passing, not less. You become more attentive to it. Only in hindsight do we perceive that time passed more quickly because we checked it less during the enjoyable activity. Your brain condenses it, and if you don't check the time over and over and over again, it makes it feel like a very short interval, because that's how your brain stores memories. Likewise, when you are bored, you don't actually perceive time as slowing down. What happens? You measure it more. You're constantly checking the clock so you remember how many seconds pass, because you're marking them. You guys tracking me on that? Another example, did you know that our emotions affect our perception of time? Studies have shown that people with depression experience time as stretching when they're in one of those depressive episodes. Negative emotions concentrate our attention on the passage of time rather than the activity that we are doing, making it feel like it takes forever. Even age and something as simple as our body temperature has been proven to impact how we perceive time. And this fascinates me, because what that means is that we can learn much about ourselves, about our internal worlds, by reflecting on our perception of time spent doing specific activities. For example, how we experience time spent with friends, going to church, doing laundry. These reveal, if we listen, our relationship with each of those things. But do you know what activities I've actually found to be most revelatory based on how people perceive the time spent engaging with them? Who wants to guess? It's kind of easy. It was a topic on the screen. Rest is one. And work. Work and rest. More than anything that I have experienced as a pastor talking to you fine people, how y'all experience your time working and resting differs wildly. For some, 
all work drags. Like literally doing anything productive feels like it takes forever. While others perceive a hard day's labor as just flying by. For some, they hate inactivity. They go crazy when they aren't doing something with their hands. While for others that I've talked to, they only feel relaxed if they are totally inactive, literally doing nothing. And each reveals something about our internal world if we're willing to listen to it. Yet, despite all y'all feeling some sort of way about work and rest, what I have also found is that few actually reflect on why they feel the way they do about each of these. More than almost anything, we're seemingly prone to just accept or ignore what our perception of time spent working and resting reveals about us, our health, our lives. Which is bonkers, y'all. Because we spend more time working or resting than almost anything else in this human existence, do we not? It is crazy. We feel a certain way about these activities that we do all the time, and we never stop and ask why. We never stop and ask, what does that say about me? We must investigate our relationship to each in order to be healthy and whole individuals which is why both are taking center stage today as we continue our new series on finding emotional health through this practice called shadow boxing. The process whereby we name and confront our shadow self. Those parts of ourselves that we hide because we perceive them as unacceptable. Our broken motivation hypocrisies, fears, behaviors, emotions, and thoughts that we often deny exist even to ourselves. Who's got some of that? Things we all must eventually face because such hidden realities, I got bad news, don't disappear just because you ignore them. No, you see, if left unchecked, our shadows begin directing our lives. To find health, we must face ourselves, shadow and all, engage in shadow boxing work, and let Jesus guide us into transformation on the other side. And work and rest are two of the most fertile grounds for our shadow self, for broken concepts of identity, meaning, value, worth, purpose. To explore why, I'm actually going to do something a little different today. And that is I want to do a very broad, helicopter-level view survey of the entire biblical vision of work and rest. And these are two critical concepts. You see, both are major themes in Scripture. In fact, both appear in the opening pages of the Bible, in Genesis' two creation accounts. You see, Genesis, its first account, depicts God creating the cosmos. It's like a universe-level view. And what we see is that God creates everything over six poetic, symbolic days. And then on the seventh, what does he do? He rests. Or in Hebrew, the word is Shabbat, meaning to stop. God works and then rests by stopping his labor, his activity. Because creation's ready to become the life-spilled space that he intended. Things are ready to thrive. 
Here, what we see is that rest and work are both things that God does in his rhythms of existing, and also they define how creation was intended to exist. This restful environment of peace and abundance where humanity works alongside God to grow life from its fertile soil. And this image is furthered in Genesis' second account, which runs parallel to the first, but focuses in on us, humanity. Huzzah, we matter. God creates the land in this account, but, oh my gosh, there's no one to enjoy it. There's no one to cultivate it. So what does God do? God creates humanity. God creates Adam, or Adam, which in Hebrew means humanity, and then he creates Eve, which in Hebrew means life giver. And then what we find is this. We read in Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and take care of it. So again, we see the same pattern. God creates this restful environment and then plants life, in this case human beings within it, to work. Or, and you're going to get a lot of Hebrew today, or in Hebrew, avad. Avad describes the effort of our hands, digging, planting, cultivating alongside God to help what's already there, life, grow more abundantly. It's a gardening term. And notice in this passage, it's really fascinating. This Avad work is grounded in rest. You might miss it, but you see in Hebrew, the word put in verse 15 is nuah which is actually a synonym for rest. It describes being settled into a peaceful environment. The actual translation is God rested humanity in the garden to work it. Together, this is work as God intended. It's more than scratching out survival. It's relational, life-giving, creative done in response to God's provision, not to earn it. And above all, it's restful. The point is that in Eden, rest isn't the absence of activity like we often think about today. It's a peace and a trust in all activity. Where humanity asks, how can I apply my effort to help God's good gifts flourish more than they would on their own. Not because I have to, but because I get to. It's restful work. Isn't that beautiful? Am I the only one? But, here's the thing. Restful work requires buy-in. You see, God tells humanity that they can eat from any tree in the garden except for one the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which in the Genesis account symbolizes that humanity must trust God's vision for life and creation to experience it as it was intended to be, or in this case, to experience restful work. And this is my favorite question. I ask this all the time. Does humanity do that? Yes or no? No, no we do not. Humanity grasps for the tree. They try to take this for themselves, and y'all, everything breaks including the human experience of rest and work. You see, in distrust and selfishness, humanity forfeits restful work. And broken rest and work become central themes 
in God's story. It actually becomes this really interesting thing where the Bible repeatedly plays with these two concepts to cast a very fascinating vision of where our creation is going. You see, humanity begins working according to our wills, our wisdom, our ways, for our purposes, power and control, and avad becomes not restful work, but toil. Toil, producing greed, oppression, and death. And there is no rest. The most visceral example of this is in the Exodus. When Israel is enslaved under Pharaoh, guess which word is used to describe their oppressive labor? Avad, the God-given gift of work in Eden, becomes the oppression of Pharaoh. Humans become Pharaohs, using God's gift of Avad to create bondage rather than grow life. Has anyone seen that process in human history? Anybody? But will God leave creation to this fate? Yes or no? No. He commits to rescuing his world, which repeatedly gets described through the language of restoring rest. When God calls Abraham, he promises to work through him and his family to restore humanity's what? Our rest. When God liberates Israel from Egypt, he promises to lead them to a land where they'll find what? Rest. When God gives Israel the Ten Commandments, what is the fourth one about? Rest. Oh my gosh, how are you guys? Come on, come on. Wake up. It's about rest. You heard, you heard John Stott read it, right? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. rest. Thank you. For in six days God made creation, but he rested on the seventh. In other words, when God seeks to transform these freed slaves into his Eden people, he reshapes their work week to culminate in this 24-hour foretaste of restored Eden rest, where they inconveniently interrupt their lives to remember that God's generosity, not their toil, sustains them. That they are created not for bondage, but for restful work alongside their creator. This theme saturates God's story. When you see it, you cannot unsee it, I'm telling you. Which means it's not surprising, or it shouldn't be, that Jesus adopts it too. Jesus begins his ministry in the Gospel of Luke on Shabbat by reading scriptures about restoring cosmic rest to God's good world. Jesus, when confronting the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, calls himself the Lord of Shabbat, or rest. Or my favorite, in Matthew 11, when describing his fundamental invitation Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And this is a fascinating text. Jesus says, find rest by adopting my yoke, which is an incredibly strange thing to say, Jesus, because yokes are not 
tools for rest. They are tools for what? Work. Yokes are bars you'd place over the shoulders of oxen to redistribute the weight they're pulling between them. But this is powerful. I want to unpack this for a second. First, it's important to know that in Judaism, yokes symbolize following a rabbi. You would yoke yourself to your rabbi by adopting their teaching and their ways of life. Second, and I want you to think about this, if we're adopting a new yoke to find rest, then we must already have a yoke that doesn't bring rest, correct? Hold that thought. And third, do yokes remove any weight from a load that you are pulling? No, they do not. They just redistribute how we carry the load so that it feels lighter. So how do we find Jesus' rest? Well, to summarize, first and foremost, and this is the key beginning, it requires connecting to Jesus. Second, we must take off how we've been working and adopt his way of work. And in that third, work doesn't disappear, but how we carry it becomes restful. Connect to Jesus, adopt his ways, and burdensome toil becomes restful work. Now, I think we'd all say, of course, Pastor Mike, we should connect to Jesus and adopt his ways. That makes perfect sense. Anyone disagree with that? But do we actually do that when it comes to rest and work? Do we actually connect to Jesus as our first priority every single day of our lives? Do we actually discern Jesus' will before we dive into the busyness of our days? Is your work defined by restfulness or discontent, anxiety, and exhaustion? You see, I think most of us affirm what Jesus says here, but we don't do it. And I think there's many reasons for that. I think for many, that's because connecting to Jesus as first priority requires time, which we say we don't have because we're too dang busy. We prioritize our work over our relationship with Christ. Others don't. Because, whether via our culture or our family of origin, we've internalized that our identity and our value comes through work, from what we produce for other people. And what we find inside when we slow down, quite frankly, terrifies us. If you're like me, you know what I'm talking about. In stillness, we hear that shaming voice, I'm not good enough, safe enough, successful enough, secure enough. But in busyness, whoo! We drown out such tapes of inadequacy, do we not? But what's the outcome? Well, I'll tell you, we let work trample every area of life and its poison, its toil. We can't work in our ways and by our wills without forfeiting Christ's Eden rest. If we don't take time to give Jesus access to our motivations, our insecurities, our fears, then our shadows will own us. I experienced this last summer, right before Pastor Scott arrived. I've been going nonstop ministry for two years. 
preaching, counseling, serving, doing good work for Jesus. But I recall this vividly. You see, that summer I led a series on the book of James, which is my favorite book in the New Testament. And during that series, I gave some of my best sermons ever. I mean, it was praise central, baby. High fives all around. Every sermon I got, I got some feedback. Mikey knocked that one out of the park. But you know what? Inside, I was burned out. Weekly, the creative work that I love, thinking of new movies to connect to passages, metaphors, angles, felt exhausting, y'all. I gave the last sermon in that series, I remember telling my wife I had used the very last idea I had left, that I was empty. And what I've recognized since through returning to therapy and doing shadow boxing in my own recovery is I felt that way because my shadow was driving me. I developed this I'm not good enough tape and I was using that anxiety as productivity fuel. It was motivating me to work harder, to produce more, even if it made me sick. I had this Pharaoh living inside of my head, whispering that my value came from what I produced, that my love was earned, that I must do more, 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 regardless of the cost to me, to my family, to my children. That's the insidiousness of our shadows. I was succeeding outwardly, but inwardly it was toil without rest. And y'all, it wasn't my job. I loved this job. It was my yoke, my internal posture carrying everything by my will, my time, my ways. That posture makes God's good gifts feel like burdens. Y'all, that's bondage. And that is not how we're called to live. Our God broke Pharaoh's power and gave us rest to teach us that we are his children with identity and value given by grace, not earned by us. Jesus says, come to me and find rest, not by doing away with activity or work, but through my restful way of carrying it, open-handed, present, constrained by healthy boundaries, Humble, grateful, balanced, trusting, approaching all of the activity of my hands through a loving union that I started my day with and through which I can surrender all the rest. That's a vision of work that reminds me I'm building his kingdom, not my own. And y'all, my kingdom sucks. That is good news. With that yoke, we accept today's work but relinquish to God its results. And we're able to release our delusions that we somehow create our own value. With that yoke, our work remains, and it is good, but it's as light as a feather. Does anyone want that in their life? That's the invitation. But to embrace it, we've got to do some shadow boxing. So to close, I want to get real practical about what shadow boxing with work and rest has looked like for me. What's helped me cultivate restful work? And we start where it always starts. First, 
Take an inventory of yourself. Stop, slow down, get still, and actually inventory your emotional, spiritual, mental, and physical health. The psychoanalyst Peter Rollins says that in the West, we can overfocus on what he calls symptom management. For example, let's say I'm struggling with chronic headaches, shoulder tightness, and irritability. Well, often in response, what we do is we play whack-a-mole with each symptom, rushing to treat each separately, which can be good. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes your migraine is purely physical and you just need medication. Go to your doctor. But sometimes our symptoms are connected and they are arising from deeper issues. We hate our jobs. We're in toxic relationships. We have unresolved traumas that are eating us alive. And in those cases, symptom management isn't healing. It's actually helping us avoid our real problem. It feels productive to play boop, 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 whack-a-mole with each thing as it arises, but we aren't dealing with the root brokenness. Sometimes to actually heal, we have to stop playing whack-a-mole and listen to our symptoms. Or as Peter Rollins calls it, let them become prophets speaking to the broken powers running our lives. We have to let our symptoms become Moses's, calling down our pharaohs to actually heal. So inventory yourself. What might your prophets be shouting at you and you're just too busy to listen? Are you always anxious about the future? Or always feeling like there's too much to do in too little time? Are you always rushing or late to every non-work plan but always on time to your job? Do you fire quick opinions or judgments? Do you talk more than you listen? Do you feel threatened by the success of others? Are you defensive and snapping at everyone by five o'clock every day? Are you distracted when not working? Do you constantly ignore the tightness in your body? And y'all, this one's personal for me. I walked around doing this apparently for years until I talked to a therapist who said, you know normal people don't feel that way, right? And she was right. I was carrying all of that stress in my body and just ignoring what my body was shouting at me. You said yes to any of those questions, though. You've got shadow boxing to do. Second, measure your time. This is a very easy one. Use four categories, prayer, rest, relationships, and work. Think of daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly commitments. Write down the time you allot to each, and then measure it. Do you all think one of your categories might be way bigger than the others? The goal is balance. Doing more of any one of these takes away from another, and that imbalance can be revealed if you're willing to measure it. Because what I have found is when there's massive imbalance in my life, the shadow is there every single time. And if it's out of balance, adjust. In this, I recommend two practices. First, connect to Jesus daily as a first priority. God deposits some things in us only when we get still. 
When we connect with Jesus before jumping into the rat race, we discover God's often speaking and we are too busy to hear him. Goals we think are critical get revealed as trivial or not your job. We realize that life is broader than our personal projects. It becomes easier to trust God with the outcomes of our activity. So each morning, find a set-apart space and take 30 minutes to an hour to be still and connect with Jesus through practices that bring you peace. Meditation, scripture reading, it's different from everyone. I have a list. Reach out, and I can help you with this. Practice trial and error, but do it. And do it focusing on the goal, not as this just being one more thing to do. What draws you into conscious contact with your creator before you get busy and forget about your creator? It's inconvenient, but this balances activity for God with being with God. And that is critical for being healthy. And second, honor the Sabbath. A weekly 24-hour block of time where you stop working, rest, play, and connect with God. And this isn't just a day off to replenish us for more work. That's not the goal. On Shabbat, for 24 hours, we stop our addiction to busyness and just exist by God's grace. We embrace our human limits, let go of the illusion that we're indispensable to running God's universe, and remember that's okay because God's sustaining it without our help, y'all. I know that's a shocking wake-up call for some of you, but it's true. On Shabbat, God frees us to delight in his gifts that are already present in our lives and embrace activities that replenish our souls, which doesn't mean meditating all day. It means doing whatever draws you into awareness of God's love and everything from people, food, art, babies, hobbies, music, hiking, you name it, just not work. So prioritize the Sabbath. And this is easy. I'm just going to walk you guys through it. Step one, identify 24 hours that fit around your non-negotiables. For me, that's Monday. For you, it might be Sunday. Step two, plan accordingly. Rearrange your time the other six days. Get the laundry, get the work emails done. Third, this is critical, define and maintain boundaries. The Sabbath is for playfulness, peace, rejuvenation, what does that mean for you? Write down a will and won't list. I will experience God's goodness and creation, the outdoors and the arts. I will not look at social media, check my email, do my chores list. Your Sabbath will be unique, and it's going to change over seasons, but once planned, you got to do it. And y'all, it's going to be challenging, it's going to be disruptive, it's going to be inconvenient at first, but just do it. It's for your good. After two months, reflect what's working, what's not, adjust. Find support from your significant others, friends, and colleagues. Y'all, I tell Pastor Scott, I will not respond to you if you email me on Monday. I just won't do it. Sorry, bud. Because it's my Sabbath. Shadow boxing with work and rest is hard. But when we do it, we learn to embrace God's rhythms of restful work. We proclaim that we are freed people liberated by grace and we remember that our inherent value is given, not earned. And we remember that God's love sustains this universe, not us, and that is good news. So where are you wearied? Where are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Because to that shadow, Jesus says, come to me. 
find rest from your work and learn how to work from my rest. Amen? Amen. Amen.